Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is provided for you by the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Government Department. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics about government. Some may be surprising to you and some may not, so please enjoy. Welcome to episode 23 of the Let's Talk Government podcast. Today we're going to talk about satire and politics. I am joined by one of my favorites, Dr. Amelia Pridemore from the Political Science Program at Minnesota State University, Mankato. We've had some very interesting discussions on outlaw citizenship and storming the Capitol. So thank you for joining me today. So I guess the obvious place to start is what is satire? Well, the way that uh, Dr. Dana Young, who is the author of a fabulous book that um, myself and my students love, uh, Irony and Outrage, about uh, the power of satirical programming as well as what's called outrage programming, a lot of what you see on conservative talk radio. So she defines satire as um, playful conversation. It's intended, of course, to elicit laughter But as I tell students when I teach them about satire, something can be hilariously funny, but that doesn't make it satirical. So what makes it satirical now? So one thing that it does is it articulates a political or social judgment, and it often does so in somewhat of an antagonistic or aggressive type of fashion. Um, It also advances critiques in society and institutions. And when we do this, it forces us, the audience, to examine if we possibly ourselves are complicit, according to Dr. Young. Um, Now, targets a satire. Um, It might be prominent political figures, you know, the president. Um, it might be institutions, things that, that you know, we do that we don't really think about, but they're naturally a part of our everyday lives. Um, like, for example, religion. Um, John Oliver did a large piece on uh, the impact of televangelists and uh, how some of them use faith for financial gain. Um, so, you know, institu- if you're talking about institutions, religion is one of them, and there's some people who use it in often not so great ways. Um, practices, just things we do that maybe we don't even think about so much. Um, and then it could be social or cultural conventions, such as gender roles, mm-hmm. right? Um, but these conventions have political implications, or perhaps the people who are the target of it is us. We, there's a danger in satire when you're watching it sometimes, as I tell people all the time. It could turn out at the end of a program that you're sitting there feeling really guilty about what you did last year, last week, five minutes before. Um, there's, there's a danger to self when uh, when listening to satire because who knows it may be when you're listening to a satirical program and that judgment is passed it may be on you (laughs) it may be on you or just all of us as a society and that's one of the the key points about it um 
The other thing is, is that satire is a process, um, that judgment I mentioned to you, that's, that's the endpoint of a big process that satire is. So it's not, so again, not only is it a deliberate way of telling jokes, but there's also a deliberate process in it that, uh, Young identifies. Um, so again, it starts out with a little bit of aggression. There's a little bit of, there's a little bit of a punch to it, but it's sort of like a play fighting type of aggression. Um, so for example, uh, John Oliver will often start off his programming uh, saying something to the effect of, hi, welcome to our blank void, since he's been having to uh, record in a socially distanced form, you know, kind of like, Ugh this is terrible, Ugh. but it's, it's, but he's, he's kind of making a joke with it. So he's, it's not, you know, your dad screaming at the TV. Right. <laughs> but um, so there's a little bit of snark to it. And then there's a lot of play that, uh, that young identifies. Now what I call the play part is really critical in terms of winning the audience's hearts and minds. And I call this the clown setup. And what I mean by the clown setup is that the host of a satire program will basically say, either literally or in some other form or fashion, don't take me seriously. I'm just a comedian. I'm just a clown. I'm an idiot. <laughs> uh, like, for example, one thing that uh, people would say to Jon Stewart in the early days of The Daily Show was, um, you know, can you believe how much of an impact that your program has had? And Jon Stewart would typically reply with, my show comes on after, after a program that involves puppets making prank calls. <laughs> um, you know, he would, you know, um, John Oliver put a picture of himself in an awkward teenage, his awkward teenage years, on the billboard of his show for the for, for the for the previous season, um, you know they've uh, they'll 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 do this all the time. Uh, John, another one with Oliver was that before one of his seasons started at the at the on the preview reel, they said, and the critics are raving, and it was basically all of these horrible things that uh, Donald Trump, uh, Jack Warner from FIFA, uh, some other authoritarian leaders had, 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 had to say that was really terrible about his show, you know, as a promo. <laughs> Right. It's a promo. It's like the critics are raving. This show is terrible. <laughs> but it, but he made sure, you know, that the people who were who were saying this were some that a lot of people don't like. Um, so but what they do is they make sure to kind of, um, you know, take themselves down a notch. Hey, don't take me so seriously. And so what happens is, is where they don't where they don't put themselves on a pedestal. And in fact, try to sell, uh, set themselves up as, as the goofball, a lot of times what happens is, and this is something that happens with us when it comes to entertainment presentation or when inform, uh, information as is presented to us as, as entertainment. Well, what happens with audiences is if something is presented as straight up political information, people put up their guard put up their dukes right. because that's going to challenge their pre-existing beliefs. Oh no, you don't. Don't come at me with that. 
But if you have somebody who's saying, hey, look at me, I've got a really dumb show that's followed by uh, some puppets later on. Um, You know, hey, I, I look at look at my awkward middle school picture. You know, it's like, oh, isn't this fun? And the guard goes down. Right. And that's a very deliberate process. And that, <laughs> and what it does is when you, when you have people put on their, put down their guards, naturally speaking, the information flows to them a lot easier. Um, it's a little more, it's a little more, it's a little easier to digest when you ha- when you swallow your food with a, uh, with a glass of satire. with a glass of entertainment per se right so the the clown setup is key because that's what's going to disarm the audience hey guys we're just here to have fun and be stupid isn't that nice um but But we see that in print satire too don't we the clown setup. oh yeah if you look at bloom county opus was a penguin who was the center of all this political commentary and bill the cat and and even Doonesbury, I mean, it's on the comic page. How, how could it be political or, or editorial cartoons are drawn cartoonish so you have that clown set up. So that makes a lot of sense, Amelia, it does. So. Oh, yeah. And if you talk about editorial cartoons and, uh, uh, and likewise, uh, some satirical print programming like The Onion, mm-hmm. a lot of times, too, that really builds on what, what, I'll, I'll often, what some people have often called uh, the kernel of truth. So, for example, just, you know, like, for example, uh, editorial cartoons, um, sometimes they would um, make Barack Obama's ears especially large. And, you know, he he was known for having kind of larger ears, but they would make his, you know, basically be like much larger than his head, (laughs) Um, you know, or um, or. George W. Bush, they'd have him on like these, you know, cowboy boots or whatever to kind of re- represent this ideal of, you know, him being this um, loud, brash Texan or whatever. But the thing is, is it's kind of like, um, but the way a lot of these tend to operate, especially when you have a print based uh, satirical publication, mm-hmm. they start out with something that is so believable that it's real almost. In fact, some of these um, same people who who have been the target of uh, satirical programming, like for example, Jack Warner of FIFA uh, fame or infamy, if uh, whatever you might want to say, who has had war, war of words with John, were a war of words with John Oliver. Right. Okay, well, uh, there was an onion story about FIFA that came out and Jack Warder was uh, was on television. You know, how dare you say these horrible things about me? And it was a story in the onion. <laughs> but the thing is, I've, I've seen I've personally seen people who don't know what the onion is. Believe it right. because because it just seems like there's this um this air of truth to something that's absurd and the thing is is when you're when you're looking at something that's absurd Mm -hmm. and you kind of see the connection between the real and the absurd sometimes what i i will say is is if you're if you're laughing because it's real maybe you should think about why you're laughing that's a good point right why why are you laughing and is this a laughing matter? 
Right. Oh yeah, that stupid thing that uh, that one politician does all the time. Oh yeah, man, I see that all the time. Why are we seeing that all the time? Is it okay that we're seeing this all the time? Right, um, right. For example, one of my favorite Onion articles that I've uh, I've sometimes used is um, it was from a few years ago, and it was an article that was uh, it was something called to, uh, something to the effect of taxpayers demand that their money only be wasted on things that are awesome. (laughs) Basically. So um, they were uh, the people who were uh, the fake people who were fake interviewed for the story were uh, saying things like, Hey, instead of um, building a bridge to nowhere, how about you build us space lasers and, (laughs) you know, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's, make a huge uh, sausage that goes all the way from Miami to New York. We'll eat it, of course. And one of my favorite bits of it was um, um, sports stadiums. Um, Taxpayers didn't mind, according to this Onion article, of course it's fake, taxpayers didn't mind public financing of, of new sports stadiums as long as the old stadiums could be exploded while everybody gets to watch and while ACDC's Highway to Hell is playing in the background. (laughs) And so in other words, yes, if you're going to waste our money uh, on things like sports stadiums, uh, well, at least... Make do something cool for us, or if you're going to waste everybody, waste on things that are cool. Now, think about it. You know, one thing that has come up a lot when we talk about public financing and that's been criticized has been the public financing of sports stadiums. Mm -hmm. You know, why are we publicly financing, you know, the NFL, right? Right, right. (laughs) So, um, you know, why, why are we doing this? Um, so, and for that matter, why are we spending money on this? Why are we spending money on that? Yeah. Um, when we talk about how government does or does not spend our money, you know, we we're laughing at, for example, the sports stadiums bit, but why are we laughing? Right. Right. Is there is there something to be said about why we're laughing at this Mm -hmm. and not just the sports stadiums, but any of this? Why are we laughing? And that and that and that causes us often to ask some uh, some really important questions. If this is so absurd, should we do should we do something about something that is so absurd? Right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I kind of interrupted your discussion of process. We were at clowns there. So what's the next step <laughs> after that here? Okay. So basically, so throughout the, so throughout the programming, oftentimes, again, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a little bit of aggression, um, a little bit of play, but again, you know, there's, there's that, there's this kind of clowning around aspect to it. So for example, one thing that's often done by, uh, by, pretty well all of the pro, uh, prominent satirists out there, John Oliver, Samantha Bee, um, uh, Trevor Noah on The Daily Show does this fairly often. They'll, you know, throw out some kind of outrageous graphics in the middle of their piece <laughs> to, to um, just if nothing else to just to, you know, keep you laughing and keep the and keep the kind of the show going. Uh, for example, John Oliver's um, quest for um, for uh, some rather suggestive 
rat art <laughs> that happened this past year um, that was utilized in some of his sketches after he found it. Um, so yeah, but you're decide you're 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 informing the audience, but you're disarming them at the same time and making them more receptive because this is fun. Wow, but you're still drawing them in. And it goes a little further and further until it reaches what I call the judgment. And the judgment, kind of like what I mentioned before, according to what uh, Danny Young has had to say, um, the judgment could be, you know, a political figure, uh, a political party. They could be a institution, possibly one that we hold dear, like, for example, freedom of religion. Well, yeah, some people find ways to create loopholes around that to have a $6 million parsonage in a $60 million jet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's us. Uh, and one, one big example that I used in terms of we ourselves are to blame when it comes to satire is uh, John Oliver's piece on uh, warehouses. And he mainly focused on Amazon uh, during this bit. One of the things that he made sure to do was, you know, he said, hey, guys, how many of you are, how many of you are uh, buying Prime this week? How many of you, you know, had to have your horse head mask in one day, right? Mm-hmm. And then they, and then he goes on to show these Amazon workers, some of them who are 80 years old, um, but some of them who were very young people who were physically giving out. Some of them were, had no bathroom breaks and having to wet themselves on the job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, and he followed it at the end with this little like parody of uh, Amazon's commercial about how happy their workers are. And it was, it was something like, Hey, Jim, uh, aren't you a happy person to be working here at Amazon? I am going to have to wet myself now. Can, can you please turn the camera off? <laughs> right? right. But the thing is, is when you think about how many times you or I or anybody else has ordered prime just in the past day, mm-hmm. And then when you watch something like that, where you're having to see a 77-year-old man have to walk uh, the equivalent of a football field to get your Oreo cookies and, um, you know, people having to wet their pants at work, you know, all of a sudden that horse head mask isn't so fashionable after all, is it? Right. And that's, that's something, but the thing is, is, you know, there's a bit of discomfort about that is you're, you know, all of a sudden those Oreos aren't as tasty when you see what, uh, where they came from or how, what it took to get them to you. Mm-hmm. But in a way, this is a very necessary process that has to happen. If we don't, if we ourselves are doing something that's detrimental to our society and to our democracy or just to each other. Maybe we need to be called out ourselves and sometimes satire achieves that. So I think it's important to note that satire is not always about politics. Many times it is about the conditions that humans are or something that's going on in society. I'm just thinking about some of the parodies I saw about wearing masks over the last year. You know, it was it was some satire to also put some social pressure on people to realize that they should be wearing masks and wearing them properly. 
So is there any way, well, was that the full process? I don't want to stop the process. I know we got to judge. That was the general outline of it. Yeah. The big key is the judgment. All right. So is there, I mean, so why doesn't satire just get out of control and keep going and going and going? Is there any way to just like say, wait, time out. Let's, let's think about this. Well, actually that's a, that's a great point because there's, there's a bit of satire that one of my mentors from Marshall University, Dr. Jamie Warner, has talked about, and that's called political culture jamming. And basically how I how I describe it anyway is that satirists, it's not putting the brakes on themselves. Satirists put the brakes on often ludicrous, sometimes even dangerous uh, pl- political information that we're either getting from our political leaders or and other political figures or uh, from the mass media. So actually satire isn't so much that it's out of control. Satire is actually the emergency break when you take uh, when you take in the uh, to account the concept of political culture jamming. So uh, Dr. Warner in a very awesome uh, 2007 article that she wrote about uh, the Daily Show and political culture jamming. So culture jamming itself has been around for quite some time. Um, Mainly it was used as a critique against uh, capitalistic culture Mm -hmm. and, but it was kind of done in a very aggressive style. What political culture jamming does, it's a little different and namely in that it uses a lot of the same Mess. It it like uh, like culture jamming when uh, when it was done in advertising. It uses a lot of the same messaging techniques, just like the uh, just like is done on the news. Okay. Just like it's done on, uh, in politics. Um, the difference between regular culture jamming and the political culture jamming that Dr. Warner la- uh, lays out is that. There's a humor and parody involved that makes it seem innocuous. Again, oh, it's just it's just a fun show. It makes it innocuous, and again, it allows them, as Dr. Warner puts uh, puts it, you know, satirists like John Stewart can operate stealthily, and they can uh, they can basically get the job done in kind of a little disguise way. Again. Set, uh, setting themselves up like the clown right no don't take don't take me seriously even though they are making an impact it's sort of um it's sort of basically they don't come out as putting themselves up on a pedestal mm-hmm. so really it's like oh it's just it's just a conversation with this cool friend of mine versus say the exalted one that <laughs> that's on a pedestal right? right and so there's a there's a greater approachability to it now with culture jamming what basically this means is that um, is that satirical comedians will um, according to dr warner so, uh, will use dissident interpretations of political messaging political events so it's coming from somebody who you know is 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 advancing a critique Mm-hmm. They don't want to parrot back what they're seeing on the news or they're seeing in politics. And what they do is the term jam, they jam that political messaging. And oftentimes they use the same techniques 
-hmm. that news and politics does, particularly the news. Uh, so, for example, take these news parody shows like The Daily Show, uh, The Old Colbert Report, right. um, you know, the same, you know, desk, the American flag graphics, you know, you're talking about these pundit shows that Stephen Colbert was uh, was mimicking in The Old Colbert Report, you know, eagles flying around all over the place, um, uh, you know, graphics galore, um, you know. Basically, they uh, and, and if you're talking about John Oliver, John Oliver is known for, well, when he's not having to broadcast in his blank void that he's having to use now, um, you know, John Oliver's known for at the end of every show, putting on some kind of crazy over the top spectacle with marching bands and uh, people dressed up in uh, bear costumes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, um the uh the foul mouth squirrel um well i mean and for that matter the lawsuit that led to the foul uh, that the foul mouth squirrel um um you know sparked you know the mm -hmm. the incident with the coal magnate bob murray well right before everything was shut down for covid uh john oliver did a did a basically he did a satirical take on Bob Murray and people using litigation to silence dissident voices. So a you know, greater aspect, not just what happened to John Oliver. They did a whole bit involving a Times Square dance number with fireworks, <laughs> costumes, dancers. Um, yeah, so a lot of these spectacles, oftentimes that are well over the top, well, the things that are often used on, say, on a cable news network, mm -hmm. same stuff, all the graphics flying at you, you know, lots of American flags all over the place because, you know, we're patriots, right? Right. Well, satirists are using the same thing. And what that does is that newscast parody or that parody of something that we see in the political sphere it gives them this sort of air of legitimacy, this air of respectability, according to Warner. Right. Um, and, and the music and graphics. Um, one thing that I found that was really funny when I talked about this with students is um, one of my students remarked in class once that when watching cable news, he felt like it was, he felt like everything was breaking news. Everything was just breaking news, breaking news, all the time, breaking news. And and I said, uh, so to kind of spark some further discussion with the students, I said, okay, well, when you see breaking news, what happens? What, what do you see? And they're like, oh yeah, the graphics, the music, and somebody yelled out from the back, it's like Colbert. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, um, you know, Colbert, the old Colbert report was designed to parody the news and now they're <laughs> it was designed to be like the news and now the students are telling me especially the younger generations they're telling me the news looks like colbert <laughs> right right oh that's funny that's very funny well and like um so i'm gonna date myself a little bit but like the weekend report from saturday night live was always so hilarious because it was just like watching news that was made up you know so when you kind of equate that I never thought of it as satire. I always thought it was just entertainment, but really it kind of crosses lines there, doesn't it? So. Yeah. Uh, Weekend Update didn't go as 
far probably as the daily show and and some of the spinoffs that have come uh come before it namely because a lot of their a lot of their takes weren't as aggressive but still yet when you've got um for example tina fey's remarks about um uh when when she and amy poehler became a two-woman hosting force on uh on weekend update you know some of her remarks that were to the effect of perhaps some women aren't exactly nice Uh um but perhaps some of these same women who aren't exactly nice get things done and perhaps that should be more fashionable Uh you put everything very politely um (laughs) excessively politely um that that made some waves and that that did make some people think you know because a lot of times when we talk about women in politics, they talk more about that likability. Do we like her? Do we like her? Um, I mean, how many people ask that about Donald Trump, right? <laughs> or worry about how they dress or what their hair looks like. You know, that type of thing is, yes, I agree. I agree. But when you, t- especially when you talk about that likability factor, you know, one of the things, if you think about it, that, that Tina, uh, what Tina Fey was having to say was, was very accurate in terms of critiquing the whole, do we like her? Well, well, maybe if we, maybe she can get things done and maybe it shouldn't matter as to whether or not we like her or if we like her, does it still mean, likewise, is it, is it, is it good to have somebody we like who isn't going to get anything done? Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) But yeah, she called out that whole likability thing that a lot of, um, that a lot of, um, a lot of our, a lot of our, um, a lot of what's been said in the political sphere, namely about female candidates. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the things that culture jamming does is essentially it calls out. I always say that when it comes to the messaging, the messaging that often, especially in the era of 24 hour news and social media, man, what it is, is it just feels like it's like a wrecking train, um, which some media scholars pointed out, oh, this is going to be really bad. When, when, as technology evolves, well, the thing about culture jamming is, is it puts the brakes on what seems to be this never-ending cycle, and it says, "Wait a minute, what's going on here? Why, for example, why are we caring about this when it comes to our female candidates? Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, what are we letting people?" use this uh tax exempt status for religious organizations for exactly wait a minute what is going on here time out and i think that's one uh, aspect that culture jamming aspect i think is a major benefit to not only us being informed citizens, mm-hmm. but our actually having a healthier democracy, especially in the age of of greater technology and things just flying at us uh, at the speed of light, you know, feeling like the news is Colbert, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one, uh, one media uh, scholar, and he wrote this book in 1985, but a lot of, I still assign it to this day, and a lot of my students uh, find this to be prophecy. Um, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, basically, there's a, there's a lot to unpack with, uh, with Postman's 
arguments, but basically what he has said that as technology has advanced, not only do we have information moving faster, but the thing is, is with that, with that information moving faster, we lose a lot of context that we need Mm -hmm. where we've just got to have things right now. And it's, and we've got to do it in 30 seconds and boom, right off the bat. We don't deliberate and, and ponder and question and follow up on, on, um, on information that's being thrown out there. We're not interrogating this enough, whether it be our press mm-hmm. actually doing the interrogating for us. So for that matter, as we f- ride along this kind of um, speeding locomotive ourselves as citizens, we ourselves don't get enough time to ponder things. And the thing is, is if you're talking about, you know, whether or not we should spend our money on sports stadiums, uh, whether or not, um, you know, how we, how we treat our Amazon workers, who we should uh, have as our next president, um, how we should um, handle a pandemic, right? Yeah. You know, we've, we've got to be able to think about that longer than 30 seconds. Right. Yeah. And so what culture jamming, uh, uh, that culture jamming process, what I argue is, is the culture jamming process in terms of stopping that transmission and saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Really? A lot of times what that does is it gives us the chance to regain that lost context. We get our context back once we're able to put the brakes on. And one way that we can effectively put on the brakes is through political culture jamming that satire does. Well, it's interesting because it kind of plays into the, you know, the speed of information now. I mean, if you look at some of the historically really satirical publications like the New Yorker, the Onion, you know, editorial cartoons, uh, Doonesbury, Bloom County, they had to put work into it and thought into it and then it would get published on a cycle. Or even the television shows. I mean, you didn't get to watch it every night, you know, when it was coming on. But now anybody can just grab their phone, start videoing themselves and putting it on Facebook. So how does that speed of information impact satire and politics? Well, I think one thing is that, uh, you know, you mentioned Facebook is um, now with uh, with YouTube, Facebook, etc., there's infinite platforms to where you don't need HBO or uh, Comedy Central or TBS or whoever it may be to green light your show. You can basically, you can um, have your own satire programming of whatever kind um, on your phone. And some people uh, have, have really worked to have really worked to do this. For example, um, Trey Crowder, the liberal redneck, um, he basically just started recording himself on Facebook and now, uh, now he's a sensation. Um, you know, a lot of people just, you know, grab a phone and put themselves on YouTube or on Facebook live. Um, so technology has, uh, one big thing has been that the platforms now for anybody who wants to get into the satire game is outright infinite. And the other thing that's really important about that, too, is, um, as Samantha B can attest, um, when she got into some hot water about some Ivanka Trump remarks, um, 
a lot of times too, when you have a, when you have a, um, when you have to play to advertisers, right. Network executives um, to basically be able to stay on the air. Well, you know, if um, yeah, Facebook moderates content. Yeah. YouTube moderates content, but you don't have to worry about so many puppeteers mm-hmm. um, that could pull the plug on you and pull the plug on your platform um, if you're working off of social media. Now, has this happened? Well, just ask Alex Jones, not a satirist, but nonetheless, um, he's, um, you know, he had his platform pulled. Um, but it's, uh, but yeah, you don't have to worry so much. And therefore, you can be far less censored. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is, is oftentimes you have far less of a budget. <laughs> right. right. You don't get to have John Oliver's marching bands and Times Square shutdowns and uh, fireworks. In mm-hmm. fact, if you did some of this with your, you know, you as a private citizen with only armed with your cell phone, you might get arrested for it. But <laughs> right. you know, there's the possibility of defamation depending on how far you go. So. Right. Which, by the way, that actually uh, that's a that's a good point that you brought up with defamation. Mm-hmm. See, actually, satire, when you talk about uh, the legal system, satire, not only in terms of uh, the First Amendment, not only is it helped by the First Amendment it is actually set some major precedents for the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um one that happened well before the John Oliver Bob Murray case, which was a defamation case. Um, one that happened before that was the infamous um, Hustler Magazine and Jerry Falwell case. Oh, I totally forgot about that. Yes, yeah. The Jerry, the Falwell and um, Falwell and Flint, which was the subject of the movie uh, The People versus Larry Flint. Yeah. Um, you know this the the uh, the this this was a parody ad. That was running. Uh, that was running Hustler magazine. That was uh, pretty raunchy about Jerry Falwell. Um, it made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and it was an eight-zero ruling. I believe only one person abstained. Even Antonin Scalia ruled in favor of Larry Flint <laughs> in, in this case. And the and the standard that was set was that. Uh, with with Falwell and Flint was that a reasonable a reasonable person would be able to say no this is not true so um, so for example when um, when uh, so so when uh, accusations were in a parody ad mm-hmm. which means it wasn't really real. Accusations were leveled at uh, Jerry Falwell about some of his sexual behavior, um, which was anybody could look at this and tell that it was just absolutely ridiculous. Right. <laughs> well, that that was kind of the standard that was set. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, if anybody can look at this and just know that this is just this is just absurd, mm-hmm. uh, this is this is a joke. The, uh, then then yeah, the, uh, you can, you can say what you want. Also help that, um, you know, somebody like Falwell was a public figure right. putting himself out there in the public eye, which was mm-hmm. established largely by New York times versus Sullivan. You also had him setting himself up there as this 
moral entrepreneur per se, remember moral majority. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the thing, but the, the key thing that came out of Falwell and Flint was that if nobody would ever believe that, no, it's clear that this is a joke, Um, you know, you're good to go. And that was one of the things that likely led to um, John Oliver being freed of Bob Murray. Right, right. Because, because some of the content involving Bob Murray, uh, such as um, uh, that, inv- uh, that involved the talking squirrel, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you could look at that and, and just tell that, no, this, this is, this is just a joke. So actually, what happened with Falwell and Flint and that set a satirical satirical uh, bit was it opened up the door for more content that was used as political humor. It was done to, by pointing out the absurd question, mm-hmm. gee, why are we thinking this is absurd? Hmm? Mm-hmm. So, and it was, it was a, it was a, um, it was a, a very, crude satirical piece that kind of really opened the door to that and the one that kind of kept it going was just here you know really kept that precedent going was uh john oliver and bob murray so uh so democracy thanks you larry flint and talking squirrel right (laughs) this is a perfect segue to bring you back bring into the closing is so how does satire affect a democracy are there good things and bad things i mean why do we, why should we encourage that type of democracy? Well, just as I mentioned before too, you know, you've got to be able to uh, sometimes use the absurd to point out the absurd. <laughs> In other words, why are we laughing? The other thing is, is too, when you talk about democracy and you talk about a dissident voice, whether it's whether it's a, you know, a protester on the sidewalk who has something really angry to say, or perhaps it's uh, someone doing a Times Square number with, uh, with a squirrel. Um, the thing is, is regardless of how this dissident voice that's part of a healthy democracy is doing things, still yet, it's a dissident voice it's a voice that challenges authority, mm-hmm. which is necessary for a healthy democracy. And some people might say, well, why don't they just uh, say mean things? Why do they have to do this number with, uh, with, uh, with you know, sexual humor and with swearing and, and funky looking rats and, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth? Well, the, the thing is, you know, in terms of bringing people into thinking about this dissident voice, this alternative point of view, rather than something that's often parroted out there, you know, that draw that entertainment has, mm-hmm. that's going to bring more people into that message. Maybe they're not going to accept the message, but they are going to be more likely to at least listen. And I think one of the things that we often find ourselves doing in our society today is we often just automatically shut down if somebody has a viewpoint other than our own. Right. But when you kind of 
let get people to let their guard down with that nice little clown setup, right? Mm-hmm. You get people to let their guard down with the clown setup. You know, even if you don't change hearts and minds, at least you can listen. And at least we can maybe come to some kind of understanding with each uh, with each other with with, with one another, mm-hmm. and and um, perhaps maybe it'll just have to take a foul mouth squirrel to do it. But mm-hmm. perhaps we could reach a greater understanding with one another. Oh, wonderful. Well, Dr. Piedmore, this has been an excellent conversation about satire. Um, I learned a lot I, there because I've always wondered whether there's things that I don't laugh at that other people do, but maybe it's just how you're interpreting it too. So thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash Let's Talk Gov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode and thank you for listening.